middle of the 20th century, the National Autonomous University of Mexico, La Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, or UNAM in Spanish, needed room to grow and a campus worthy of its status as the cultural and scientific heart of one of the world's great cities. They got both in the 1950s, when the enormous and spectacular University City was built up from the basaltic lava field known as the Pedregal in the southern part of Mexico City. Buildings on such a monumental scale called for equally grand art to adorn them, and many of the country's greatest muralists answered the call at a time when murals were central to Mexican painting. Pieces by two of the country's autistic titans, Diego Rivera and David Alfaro Siqueiros, still tower over the campus, but perhaps the most impressive, and surprising, are those by two lesser-known artists. The largest covers all four walls of the Central Library, where Juan O'Gorman took on no less a project than depicting the past, present, and future of a country with a particularly complex history. The larger north and south walls cover the pre-Hispanic and colonial eras, while the smaller east and west walls focus on the present day and the role of the university. If you're lucky enough to visit, take some time to soak in the images. There are a lot of them, and this is a work of art that rewards contemplation. You'll see the Aztec gods and Spanish conquistadors you'd probably expect if you know your Mexican history. But the more you look, the more you'll see how closely art and science are intertwined in O'Gorman's mural. On the pre-Hispanic wall, you'll see many references to the sun, moon, and other celestial bodies, a testament to the Mesoamerican mastery of astronomy. The heavens appear again on the colonial wall, where the constellations wheel above the names of two great European scientists, Ptolemy and Copernicus. And most prominent of all, on the east wall is a gigantic atom, that great mid-century symbol of the power of science and all the hopes and terrors that go with it. The atom shows up again in a nearby mural by Jose Chavez Morado entitled The Conquest of Energy. Once again, it appears as a mixed blessing, and once again it's paired with imagery with deep roots in Mexico. At the other end of the mural, a jaguar flees the flames of a fire, or perhaps leaps into it in keeping with the big cat's moment of courage and sacrifice at a pivotal moment in the Aztec creation story. This mix of ancient and modern will surprise no one who's been to Mexico. While the present is shaped by the past across the globe, there are few places where the two exist side by side quite so clearly as in a country where subway stations are built around Aztec altars. Perhaps more surprising is the close association of science and art, two fields that we often think of as very separate. But the two ways humans have of understanding our world really aren't so different, and not only does Mexican painting and architecture, and even gastronomy and language, reflect this, but this intertwined thread of knowledge and culture appears again and again in the country's history given us a clear path to navigate through its ancient past. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orcutt, and in this series we're heading to Mexico City. Not only will we be exploring one of the world's most criminally underrated destinations, but the places we'll be visiting highlight the often overlooked link between science and culture. Thematically, this is a sequel to the previous series on Victorian architecture, but the link between nature and culture is, if anything, even stronger in Mexican history, where it shows up time after time over millennia. 
In this episode, we'll see how the natural world of the Valley of Mexico, the volcanic landscape, the diversity of animals and plants, and the stars and planets above, have shaped the human experience in one of the cradles of civilization. Next time, we'll see just how thin the line between artist and scientist can be by working our way back from the country's most famous painter to see how artificial this distinction has always been in Mexico. We'll begin at the beginning, though, with the city's oldest ruin to explore the dominant natural feature of the valley and how it's shaped human culture from the very start. Just south of Unam's main campus, across the Pedregal, or rather, in the midst of it, sits the Pyramid of Cuicuilco. Pyramids are a staple of Mesoamerican architecture, and you'll find them in various stages of preservation throughout Mexico and its capital city. Cuicuilco stands out, though, because of its circular shape and its age. Most of the many ruins you'll see in Mexico City were built by the Aztecs somewhere in the vicinity of 500 to 600 years ago and many were still in use when the Spanish invaded in 1519. Cuicuilco is much, much older. At over 3,000 years old, the pyramid is the last major remnant of the first of many big cities in the Valley of Mexico. For reasons we'll get to shortly, there's a lot we don't know about the site, including what the people who built it called themselves or their city, or indeed what term they used to describe this urban environment they'd just invented. If their language was similar to the Nahuatl of the Aztecs, they might have referred to their city as Naltepet, a word usually translated into English as city-state, but that has a literal meaning that reveals a lot about the relationship between nature and culture in Mesoamerica. The word is a combination of at, water, and tepet, mountain, nicely summing up the dominant features of the Valley of Mexico. Climb up the Pyramid of Cuicuilco and you'll see one of these features close at hand. Just a couple of miles to the southwest is the cinder cone of Xitle, it's the closest of many volcanoes that form the mountainous walls of the valley. Like most of the Pacific coast of the Americas, Mexico lies along what geologists call an active plate boundary, where one massive chunk of the Earth's crust is being pushed below another. Some of the rocks on this plate melt when exposed to our planet's intense interior heat, and the resulting magma is what fuels the growth of Mexico's volcanoes, from the relatively tiny Xitle to the enormous cone of Popocatépetl to the southeast. The processes that drive the growth of Mexico's volcanoes are, like the volcanoes themselves, still very much at work. The active geology of the area means that earthquakes, sometimes massive ones, are a fact of life here. These twin forces of earthquakes and volcanoes can be enormously destructive, but volcanoes also gave valuable gifts to the valley's inhabitants. Volcanic rocks are rich in rare elements and minerals from Earth's interior, and after erupting, Wind, water, and biological activity wear them down into incredibly fertile soils. It was these soils that fed the great cities of Mesoamerica, and a bit south of the Valley of Mexico, in which corn was first domesticated. As we'll see in the next episode, by the time of the Aztecs, a detailed knowledge of volcanic geology and mineralogy had developed in the valley. But from the very beginning, these huge mountains that occasionally erupted ash and fire left a cultural mark. It's hard to imagine that the shape of the iconic buildings of ancient Mexico wasn't in some way inspired by the surrounding mountains. The Pyramid of Cuicuilco doesn't just overlook the Conochitle, but mirrors it on a smaller scale. Again, we can look to the Aztecs for a comparison, 
And as we'll see, the pyramid at the heart of their city of Tenochtitlan was explicitly meant to represent mythical hills and mountains. It's certainly the case that volcanoes inspired smaller-scale art at Cuicuilco. Many of the artifacts found here and displayed in the small on-site museum represent the god known in Nahuatl as Huehueteot, or Xiotecutli, patron of, among other things, fire and volcanoes. But as inspirational as the peaks to the south and west were and are, the Cuicuilca culture would eventually learn firsthand that they can be a mixed blessing. Though the pyramid rises directly from the Pedregal today, that wasn't always the case. In fact, if you visit, you'll see that archaeologists have had to dig a trench around the building to reveal its foundations. The Pedregal didn't exist during Cuicuilco's glory days. It formed around 250 AD when Xitle erupted, smothering the surrounding landscape in lava and forcing the Cuicuilca to flee their ancient city. While volcanoes formed the edge of the Valley of Mexico and dominate its geology, water, the At in Altepet, has always been central to life, human and otherwise, in central Mexico. The word valley usually makes us think of a low-lying area, but that's only sort of the case in Mexico City. At nearly a mile and a half above sea level, it's more accurately a high plateau, pushed skyward by colliding crustal plates and flat relative to the surrounding areas thanks to infilling by lava flows and eroded sediments from the flanks of volcanoes. It's low-lying only in the sense that it's hemmed in by such massive peaks, but the Valley of Mexico forms enough of a basin that water was able to collect there, at one time forming a series of shallow lakes. Unlike the mountains, there's not much left of these lakes today, but if you'd stood atop the Pyramid of Cuicuilco at its peak and looked north, you'd have seen the nearby shores of Lake Xochimilco. A few wetlands, largely engineered and cultivated as Xinampas, the ingenious floating gardens of the Aztecs, are all that remains of the lake today. These wetlands and a few patches of the Pedregal on and around the Unam campus Maybe the best places to get a sense of the environments that once existed on the valley floor. But millennia of population growth and infilling of lakes means that they provide only a small taste of the diversity that once existed in this high-altitude ecosystem. Some of the best evidence of this diversity comes from the cultures that lived in the valley, and in particular from the Aztecs, the Mesoamerican civilization of which we have the most complete record. The name Aztec probably has more meaning to modern anthropologists than it ever did to the people of the empire that grew up on the shores of the valley's lakes. They'd have been far more likely to refer to themselves as members of a particular Altepet. For example, the people of Tenochtitlan, which would become the seat of the empire and the greatest city in the Americas, called themselves the Mexica, a word that would eventually evolve into Mexico. This is far from the only Nahuatl word to have become widely used beyond the mountainous walls of the valley, and many of these loan words are used to describe nature. The importance of nature in Nahuatl is clear from looking at the Aztec alphabet, which consists of a series of glyphs. The imposing Aztec sunstone that we'll visit in the next episode includes a ring of these glyphs, among which you'll see symbols for earthquakes, weather, rain and wind, plants, reeds and flowers, reptiles, snakes and lizards, birds, eagles and vultures, and mammals, deer and monkeys. In fact, of the 20 glyphs on the stone, 17 depict some aspect of the natural world. Unfortunately, Aztec sculpture is often the only place you can see some of these features in this enormous and growing city. But if you head to Chapultepec Park, Grasshopper Hill, yet another nature reference, you can see some of the animals that inspired the development of the lyrical Nahuatl language. Zoos, and in particular aviaries, have a long history in Mexico City, and the Chapultepec Zoo is a worthy heir to a tradition that dates back to at least the Aztec Empire. It's best known for having the most successful panda breeding program outside of China, 
but its most important contribution has been the preservation of Mexican wildlife and the breeding of endangered native species. Unfortunately, the combination of isolation, chaotic geology that divides the valley into several small habitats, and the presence of huge cities dating back to Cuicuilco's heyday means that there are a lot of these endangered species that once occupied the Valley of Mexico. The zoo may be the only place in the world where you can reliably see sacatuches, or volcano rabbits, and if you get the chance, you absolutely should. They're tiny, they have short ears, possibly an adaptation to their cold, mountainous environment, and are just too adorable for words. Another species from the valley is critically endangered in the wild. There may only be dozens left, but has achieved worldwide fame in aquariums. A salamander that remains in its juvenile form its entire life, the name for this species in any language comes directly from Nahuatl. Axolot becomes ajolote in Spanish, and is frequently mispronounced as oxalotl in English. Another central Mexican specialty you can see at the Chapultepec Zoo, and in very few other places, is the domestic animal, the Xoloitzquintle, or hairless dog. But by far the most pervasive Nahuatl names are for species that live beyond the Valley of Mexico. In fact, in Spanish or in English, if an animal or plant name ends in a T sandwiched between two vowels, there's a very good chance it got its start in Nahuatl. The Mexican-Spanish words tecolote, owl, and papalote, butterfly, are two examples. But listeners to an English-language podcast like this one are more likely to be familiar with coyote, coyote, and ocelot, ocelot, though this word Nahuatl could also refer to a jaguar. But the big ones are plant names, such as chocolate, chocolate, and tomato, tomat. Thanks to Nahuatl, the natural world of the Valley of Mexico has become an everyday part of two of the world's most widely spoken languages. But the flora, fauna, and geology of the valley left more tangible marks on Aztec culture as well. When the Mexica arrived in central Mexico from the north, the best land along the shores of the valley's lakes was already spoken for. Still available, though, was an island in the middle of Lake Texcoco, an island where, according to legend, the founders of what would soon become one of the world's great cities were drawn after observing an eagle grasping a snake atop a prickly pear cactus, a scene still celebrated on the modern Mexican flag. The city of Tenochtitlan grew quickly from these humble beginnings, with more land added on by piling soil into the shallow waters of the lake, creating what even the Spanish conquistadors recognized as a wonderland of canals and causeways. With at least 200,000 inhabitants, it was among the world's largest cities, and as the city grew, so did the ceremonial center at its heart, the focal point of the Mexica world. As you walk through the ruins of the structure the Aztecs knew as the Huey Teocalli, Templo Mayor in Spanish, or Great Temple in English, you can see how the edifice grew through time. Starting with a pair of fairly modest altars, new pyramids were built on top of old ones in successive layers, meaning that as you walk into the site today, you're moving from the young outer layer through old inner ones. While it's mainly the foundations that have survived to the present day, there are enough to give you a sense of the immense size of the pyramid that once stood at the center of the temple grounds. A lot had changed in the thousands of years since the Quiquilca had built the valley's oldest pyramids. Most obviously, the Aztec versions had square bases as opposed to circular, but they were still meant to emulate the hills and mountains that dominated the edges of the valley. Thanks to extensive writings by Spanish and Aztec chroniclers, 
We even know which specific mythical mountains they were meant to represent. The north side of the pyramid was Tonakatepet, the home of the rain god Tlaloc. The south side was Kwatepec, a site central to the story of the war god and patron of the Mexica, Huitzilopochtli. And the temple reflected more than the surrounding volcanic landscape. Kwatepec means Hill of the Snake, and the huge stone serpents that sit at the bottom of the stairways leading up to the pyramid are among the building's most impressive remaining decorations. Inside the outstanding site museum, you can see that animals and plants were a huge source of inspiration to the temple's builders. In fact, there's an entire gallery devoted to the flora and fauna associated with the pyramid. Many of the objects on display are biological remains of animals and plants interred as offerings. Tlaloc in particular is associated with aquatic animals and plants, and remains of fish, crocodiles, and shellfish are common. So too are the two animals that were particularly admired by the Aztecs, eagles and jaguars. You'll see bones of both animals in the flora and fauna gallery, but you'll see them in sculptural form throughout the temple, including in the statues of eagle and jaguar warriors, elite classes within the Mexica military. Ironically for a civilization that clearly drew so much inspiration from nature, the fall of the Aztec Empire was due as much to biological causes as to military ones. When the Spanish arrived in 1519, they famously brought horses with them, as well as an organism that neither they nor the Aztecs knew existed. Variola, the virus that causes smallpox. The combination of heavy cavalry and a devastating epidemic, as well as savvy alliances with the traditional enemies of the Mexica and more than a little luck, led to a stunning Spanish victory in 1521. Like any invading force, the conquistadors brought their own culture with them. Like many of the Mesoamerican cultures before them, the Spanish used art for religious purposes, for celebrating power, and for reinforcing social structures but they did so using a visual language that was based on European traditions, rather than on the natural world of the Valley of Mexico. Many of the oldest colonial-era buildings in Mexico City would look at home on the shores of the Mediterranean, but about a century after the conquest, a new architectural style was on the rise that would put nature back in the spotlight, though in a very different way. <laughs> sensibly not wanting to reinvent the wheel, the Spanish made Mexico City the heart of their New World Empire, and built that empire's seats of political and spiritual power on the ruins of the Huella Teocalli. Even today, Mexico's national palace is just to the south of the ruins, while to the west is the vast metropolitan cathedral. The current version of this church dates to more than a century after the conquest, when the classically inspired designs of the Renaissance had begun to give way to the extravagant weirdness of the Baroque era. Baroque builders wanted their buildings to cause emotional responses in their visitors, and they did so by creating complicated mashups of paintings, sculpture, and design elements covered in ornate decoration. The style became very popular in Spain, where a combination of influences from Iberia's Moorish past and imperial present led to some of the most extravagant Baroque creations, culminating in the even more over-the-top style known as Churiguresque. The style caught on in Spain's colonies just as it had in Sevilla and Toledo, and the main altar of the Metropolitan Cathedral is one of Mexico's most important Baroque structures. What makes it so impressive are its gilded surfaces and the giddy array of decorations that seem to flow from the top of the altar. 
Look closely and you'll see that many of these designs draw from nature, using plant motifs in particular to add to the complexity of the carving. Animals make their presence felt in another structure in the southern suburb of San Angel. The 18th century fountain in the courtyard of the Casa del Risco, once a stately home and now a museum, is like no other fountain I've ever seen. Its tile work, a legacy of Spain's Islamic past, makes it a riot of color and texture cascading down the wall. In what feels an awful lot like an echo of the association between the Aztec god Tlaloc, water, and water-living animals, shells are a repeated theme in the fountain. As spectacular as both these structures are, the nature depicted in them feels a bit generic. The plants on the altar and the shells on the fountain could be from anywhere, there's nothing explicitly Mexican about them. The European view of nature was undergoing a major shift at the time, as globe-spanning empires like Spain's were introducing a small continent at the north end of the planet to the diverse natural world beyond its shores. This is when cabinets of curiosities began to become popular, and it's when the gardens we visited in last season's episode on the forest of Fontainebleau were built. Like those gardens, the natural elements of the Baroque structures of Mexico City weren't meant to be celebrating the valley's animals, plants, or landscape, but to show off the designer's mastery of natural forms and the owner's power over the world around them. But Mexican independence was coming, and along with it a rediscovery of the unique flora, fauna, and in particular geology of the valley at the center of the new nation. extremely lucky to be in Mexico City for a research trip in September of 2010, just after the bicentennial of the Grito de Dolores, the call to arms that began the process of winning independence from Spain. Buildings across the city were still lit up with lights in the national colors of green, red, and white, and there was a palpable sense of pride in the air. Today, this pride is well-established and well-deserved, but as in any young country, in the 19th century, people were still grappling with exactly what it meant to be Mexican. Several aspects of the country's ancient Mesoamerican past resurfaced as focuses of national pride, including an appreciation for the beauty and power of the country's most visible features. José María Velasco was the first artist in centuries to do justice to the great volcanoes surrounding the Valley of Mexico. Born in 1840 just outside the valley, but very much within view of the peaks around its edges, Velasco had become famous for his volcano paintings. In fact, he was fascinated by the entire natural world, and if you wander the galleries of the National Museum of Art a few blocks west of the cathedral in central Mexico City, you'll see cacti, trees, ruins, and rock formations of all shapes and sizes. But it's his landscapes, almost always featuring snow-capped pyramidal mountains, for which he's most famous. For anyone who's ever looked across a low-lying countryside on a clear day to mountain ranges beyond, they're incredibly stirring. His volcanoscapes became touchstones of Mexican identity, as did the works of another artist a generation later. Gerardo Murillo Coronado, usually referred to as Dr. Atl, also painted volcanoes, and you can also see his works hanging in the National Museum of Art. 
As we'll see in the next episode, there are actually several parallels between Dr. Atl and Velasco, but there were some obvious differences too. Dr. Atl was active in the early 20th century, and he's clearly less interested in naturalistic renderings of mountains and more in the atmospherics surrounding them. His landscapes often have a slightly distorted or otherwise unusual perspective that highlights the feeling one might get from watching a cinder cone erupt or from looking out from a high mountain vista. In my favorite of these, Dr. Atl removes the country's most famous volcano, Popocatépetl, from the picture entirely. Instead, painting the view from the mountain's flanks with the immense shadow of the mountain looming over the valley below. Just as he was inspired by the central Mexican landscape and by Velasco's older works, Dr. Atl's colorful, exaggerated landscapes would inspire the subsequent generation of Mexican artists, the same generation that would achieve international fame and that created the murals of UNAM's university city. These artists, Diego Rivera most of all, are well known for their embrace of social and historical themes. But as we saw at the beginning of this episode, science is an important and recurring theme in their works as well. Given everything we've covered since, it should come as no surprise that the natural world continued to be central to the works of Mexican artists in the 20th and 21st centuries. But the connection between nature and culture runs far deeper than just a source of inspiration. Many of the country's greatest artists, including some of the ones covered in this episode and dating back at least as far as the Quiquilca, had first-hand working knowledge of scientific inquiry. As our tour of nature in the Valley of Mexico and its impact on millennia of art approaches the present day, it's now time to reverse the clock and work our way back from the modern era to the ancient past to explore the recurring character of the artist-scientist in Mexican history. So join me again in two weeks as we knock down the imaginary walls between disciplines, starting with the most famous Mexican painter of all. Thanks for joining me on this voyage to the Valley of Volcanoes. If you enjoyed this journey through nature and culture in the heart of Mexico, I hope you'll join me again in two weeks when we take the same trip in reverse and explore the very large overlap on the Venn diagram of Mexican art and science. Following that episode, I'll be posting background information on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, where you can also learn about the music featured, in this case a retrospective of several centuries of Mexican composers, and contact me with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions. Don't forget you can also follow Voyages in our brand new Instagram account, at VoyagePod, where I'll share photos of destinations and the odd vignette about places I've visited with interesting stories that may or may not become episodes down the road. And as always, if you've been enjoying Voyages, please rate, review, like, and subscribe. And most of all, share as widely as possible with anyone else you think might appreciate it. Thanks in advance for helping me grow my audience, and I hope you'll join me for all the Voyages to come.